everyone this is josh from the solopreneur grind podcast we are live with episode 58 with ron corey multiple time successful entrepreneur and author of tenacity which we will get into ron really appreciate you coming on the show today hi josh i appreciate you having me thank you Awesome, Ron. So I'm excited to get into really everything, the book, your background. Can you tell everybody who's listening a little bit about who you are? And uh, then what we can do is get into a little bit more of the story and work our way into how you got there. Sure. Uh, well, a brief synopsis of my background is uh, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. And at the age of 19, I decided that college wasn't for me. I enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. That ended up relocating me from New York to California. And when I completed my service in the Marine Corps, I ended up on the West Coast in a relatively small town called Las Vegas. In 1973, Las Vegas was just over 100,000 residents. We now have nearly 3 million. But for someone like me who always wanted to be in business for myself, but didn't really have a shingle to hang like a lawyer or a doctor or any particular skill, it became quite the challenge to find the right thing. So my story uh, that I tell in my book describes uh, how I got out of the service, went to work as a casino dealer, and determined I was somewhat of a niche finder or an observational entrepreneur finding something that I thought I could do within my skill set and then raising the money to do it and actually jumping in with both feet and making it happen. And that's the story we'll tell today. Awesome. That's, that's really interesting. A very unique story, especially from, from the guests we've had. I want to start closer to around the age of 19 what was it that made you decide to join the army? And especially because if at that time you had these kind of entre entrepreneurial thoughts or traits, uh, that wouldn't be a first choice that I would think of, right, in, in that position, unless had those traits kind of not shown themselves at that point. Well, any of your listeners who have served in the military will know that my first response will be, I didn't join the Army. I joined the Marine Corps. Okay. We, we are all proud in the branches of the service that we served in. So I have to make that correction. Got it. Now, what happened in my case <clears throat> in uh, the early 70s, there was actually a military draft. And after my third semester at a university in New York City, I dropped a couple of classes that I was not enjoying and found that the student deferment did not apply to someone who did not maintain a minimum of 12 credits. So I was met with a greetings. Uh, it was called a greetings back in those days when you're told you're being drafted. And at the time, the Vietnam War was still going on. So rather than being drafted into a random uh, branch of the service, I elected to join the Marine Corps because my research indicated the training was more vigorous and I wanted to maximize the likelihood I would survive uh, going to Vietnam. So I went into the Marine Corps with that in mind. And upon completion of military training, 
the president at the time, Nixon, had announced de-escalation. So even though at the time I went in, everyone who was going into the service was headed to Vietnam at the time of my release from uh, boot camp and advanced infantry training in Camp Pendleton, California, uh, we ended up in a position where no one knew would be going to Vietnam and they were withdrawing so many thousand troops per month. That's how I ended up in a small military base in California, visiting Las Vegas on weekends mm -hmm. and deciding to give Las Vegas a try when I was discharged from active duty in 1974, rather than going back to my home of record in New York. Got it. And, and can we spend a quick minute or two on, I mean, I'm sure we could do a whole podcast episode <clears throat> on your experience in the Army uh, with the Marines, of course. Can you maybe list just two or three key takeaways or, or life lessons that you learned going through the Marines? Well, I think the Marine Corps helped groom me to become the adult uh, that I became, uh, they instill in their recruits a level of determination, perseverance, and diligence that gives you a never-fail mentality. And not knowing, of course, at the ages of 19 and 20, where I was destined uh, to end up, um, that training and uh, failure or a refusal to failure mentality helped groom me so that some six years later when I went into business for myself and encountered some obstacles, uh, the training in the service between that level of instilled tenacity, if you will, gave me what I needed to prevail in business, overcome the challenges that are inherent in every entrepreneur's efforts, mm -hmm. and parlay that first business I went into, into over a dozen businesses over the course of 40 years. Right. Yeah, no, you, you can definitely at least kind of make the connection in my head, because I've obviously never been in the Army and couldn't <laughs> relate in that sense. But just hearing from other people and yourself, some of those takeaways and how they could directly apply to business <clears throat> and entrepreneurship is, uh, is definitely clear. So, Ron, can you paint a picture for us? You're, you're done with the Marine Corps and you decide to, or, or I guess my question is, what does even Vegas look like at that point? Like what, what is, you know, if you can give us the walk, like, you know, getting off the bus kind of image of what you were walking into at that part, uh, that point in your life? Well, Las Vegas back in the early 70s was uh, small town USA, except for the uniqueness of offering gambling to its visitors. Many of the hotels that you see today, these mega resorts, 30 and 40 stories tall, did not exist. Most of the hotels were two and three story motel styled hotels. Some of the taller ones were the landmark, no longer here. The Sands Hotel had a small tower. Caesars Palace had a singular small tower with about 10 floors. Hmm. And it was a small town that 
uh, I found to be a very good feeling compared to big city Brooklyn, New York, that I left. And the buddy that I made in the Marine Corps and I moved to Las Vegas together. We ended up being assigned together uh, throughout our, our military career. And uh, we came to town and just took on some jobs. Now, as I said, I didn't have a particular career. So uh, I went into casino dealing, which you could learn on the job. And that's what I did in a small downtown Las Vegas casino, learned blackjack, and then expanded my gaming repertoire to include roulette, craps, and baccarat, and developed my dealing skills to where I was somewhat proficient at all four games. And uh, as most dealers who start downtown, then you start your effort to find a job on the Las Vegas Strip where the tips are better and the uh, general ability to expand your, your lifestyle is enhanced by earning more money. And I ended up landing a job after one year downtown uh, at the Tropicana Hotel wherein I dealt for a couple of years. And with an entrepreneur's mentality, I wanted to expand my ability to earn and uh, went to real estate school because a small growing town, you have a lot of people moving here per month, which at the time was a count of 6,000 people per month were pulling Nevada driver's licenses in the Las Vegas area. And I realized that many of them would be looking for a place to live. So becoming a realtor was a natural progression for me. And it was something I could do during the day while I dealt at night from 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. at the Tropicana and actually worked both jobs from 75 to 79, wherein uh, I wanted to grow more um, in the form of a career. And when, you, when you're wanting to be in business for yourself, but you don't have a particular skill set, you have to find uh, an area of business that you think you can perform in. And the one that I selected was a local tavern. Uh, I thought about it. And operating a local tavern, I could hire people to tend bar. So managing a tavern and the skill set that the Marine Corps instilled in me had me as a guy in terrific shape, good with my hands. I could operate a place. And this was years before the TV show Cheers aired. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought uh, if I could find a way to purchase a tavern, operate a safe, fun establishment where everybody would know your name, which is actually a tagline in the greeting song for the TV show Cheers, mm -hmm. <clears throat> that I might be able to find some success in business for myself. And as a Las Vegas realtor, I actually found a tavern for a client of mine. He ended up telling me that uh, that was not a location he was interested in. He wanted a tavern location closer to where he lived. And I went on the mission to raise the money to buy this tavern myself. It was a small neighborhood place with no food service. And uh, it was a relatively small down payment of $35,000 and a seller that was willing to carry the balance of 115000 
So my book describes the challenge and the method of overcoming that challenge in raising the money to buy that first tavern and then expand it into a gaming tavern with a small kitchen. And it walks you through the day-by-day challenges of making that a success. And during the, the course of owning that tavern from 1979 for about 20 years, as the Las Vegas gaming market evolved and interactive gaming became a reality in the mid-80s, you saw taverns go from operating two or three slot machines in the corner, which local Las Vegans rarely played, to interactive gaming, which most people will will uh, recall video poker coming on the scene in the 80s. And my book also goes into details about how video poker became a reality where my Marine Corps buddy and ultimately business partner, Dan Hughes, was working at a slot machine manufacturing business with a guy who invented video poker and actually launched it and developed his idea from a small gaming company into IGT, a publicly traded company, International Gaming Technology, and how he parlayed his idea into video poker, which has evolved now in the, in the current uh, decade. When you walk through a casino, anyone who's in their uh, upper 50s or 60s will remember that a typical gaming floor was about 80% table games and 20% slot machines, and how interactive gaming has reversed that trend. And a gaming floor today is 80 machines, with or 80% of their floor filled with machines, large towering LED screens with all forms of interactive touchscreen gaming, and only 20% of a gaming floor being table games, and my story describes how we took that, that development from local drinking taverns into gaming parlors and parlayed that into four local gaming taverns that were located around the Las Vegas Valley and went from being tavern owners into parlaying it into a niche of filling the need for these new development of machines and opening a small company with four people in the graphic design and printing business that designed the faces of these new gaming machines. And we took that company called Suburban Graphics, uh, which, as I say, started with four people and a small SBA loan and parlayed that into a $15 million business $15 million a year enterprise and 120 employees. Right. Uh, yet, yet another business we started in the 80s and spent 20 years building it into the giant successful business that it became. Right. Ron, Ron I want to cut you off there because there's so much that you just talked about and I want to dig into a little bit the, each of the steps, right? Uh, because each one definitely has some interest to me. And my first question is, this is even before the businesses have started, what was it like as a 20-year-old male working in Vegas as a dealer? And that's just more from a personal standpoint, just curiosity of, 
of what those first few years were like before you even, uh, you know, got, got into start, uh, got into, got your realtor certificate or anything like that. Okay. Well, it was pretty interesting because back, back in the, uh, late seventies, I'm sorry, the early seventies, uh, I, I specifically recall some unique things as a dealer. You go, generally you're on a game 40 minutes and you take a 20 minute break. And during your 40 minutes on a blackjack game or a roulette wheel, it's, it was quite intriguing to me because I would see celebrities that I was used to watching on television that were starstruck by us as dealers on a table game because they were intrigued with the thought of gaming. And I had the unique opportunity to deal blackjack or roulette to such celebrities as Telly Savalas, Lee Majors, and Farrah Fawcett. Hmm. Uh, uh, Muhammad Ali was a boxing champion in the day, and he didn't gamble, but he stood and watched me deal roulette for an entire 40 minutes one time. And I was just starstruck by the fact that there was the boxing champ of the world staring at my roulette wheel and watching me deal to a table full of uh, people with chips and handling the chips and pushing chips out and dragging them in. And uh, the Las Vegas of the 70s was filled with celebrities coming to town to entertain or be entertained. The lounge at the Tropicana had a singer named Louis Prima and his wife, Keely Smith, with a very famous saxophonist named Sam Butera. It was an open-air lounge, and I felt like while I was working a job, I was also simultaneously being ent entertained in the open-air lounge where Louis Prima would do three sets a night, and you could, you could see him 50 feet away from your table, entertaining all kinds of celebrities that would come in to watch him, Joe DiMaggio, Joe Williams, uh, you name it, and those celebrities came through hotels like the Sands, Caesars Palace, and the Tropicana back in those days. Um, and it was very interesting to work with a core of dealers and talk about what, what went on on your game when you're on your 20-minute break down in the break room about what happened and what a celebrity might have asked you and, and what it was like to interact with them. Um, it, it, was, it was a great opportunity to learn how to become uh, engaging with people. And it actually groomed me to get into the tavern business because I would talk to players on my games, whether they were Jerry Vale and Telly Savalas or Joe Blow from Ishkosh, anywhere USA, playing on your game. And to interact with those people was sort of... Uh, a training session for me so that when I went into the tavern business and I would want to engage with customers from all walks of life and make them feel important and make them want to come back to my tavern. Uh, it was a great opportunity to, to go into business for myself and learn how to interact with people. Definitely. Definitely. And so you end up becoming a realtor <clears throat> and you're working both of these jobs at the same time now. I mean, A, that those must have been some long days. And, and B, 
why is it that you didn't stick with that? Was it was it not as lucrative as you had expected, or or was the tavern just a much better opportunity? I'm curious as to why you jumped away from that, or maybe you kept it on the side. I'm, well, I'm interested in hearing. Okay, in uh, in 1975, I became a realtor because I wanted to earn more money. I wanted to develop a business that uh, would be able to support me and what would become my family uh, one day soon because I also got married in 1975 and my wife and I wanted to have children. We didn't have our first child until 1978, but I was plagued by a recurring nightmare, which was I watched my dad battle cancer throughout the 1960s and 70s and he lost two brothers and a sister to cancer. He had battled it himself. And I always felt in the back of my mind that for me, with my family history, cancer was not a matter of if, but when. And I thought if I build a family uh, that is reliant on me to support them, <clears throat> in, if in the event I got sick, and I was sick for an extended period of time, how would I support this family with car payments and house payments and a need to put food on the table if I couldn't go to work every day? So it was always in my head to develop a business that grew to the point that if I couldn't go to work for a period of time, it would support my needs. So while dealing was a great income, it pretty much paid my bills and enabled me to live a nice lifestyle, but didn't afford me anything extra to build a war chest to buy a business with. So becoming a realtor was uh, a second job that I hoped to expand my opportunities and the possibility of buying a business. And that's exactly what it did. It gave me access to funds that when a business presented itself that I thought I could possibly operate successfully, I could build the ability to earn whether or not I went to work every day. So for a period of time, I dealt, worked real estate during the day and operated my bar. And for about three months, I did all three. Jeez. And then when I realized what I could earn in the tavern to support my family, I was able to resign from the dealing job. And then I would run the tavern and sell real estate uh, throughout the day as I would make different appointments and be at the tavern at days and times that my presence there was needed. And then I did that for many years until, um, I found that I could be a successful tavern operator. And as the tavern business became more lucrative with, with it becoming a gaming establishment as well as selling food and beverage, Dan Hughes and I identified a second tavern location in 1986, which we ultimately pursued. And, and you know, my book is very much a, an entrepreneur's how to showing how I went about identifying businesses that I thought I could run, acquire, or open from scratch 
why I felt there was a niche that I could fill that was not being filled and how I went about doing it. And it actually walks you through my mindset at the time, why I opened Presidential Limousine Service in 1984, why we opened Suburban Graphics in 1986, what the state of the marketplace was like, and how we raised the money to do each of these different new businesses and the struggles we encountered, how we overcame them and grew each one into a successful venture before going into the next one. And in answer to your question, it wasn't because I was making an insufficient amount of money. I just always found it in me that I wanted to find a way to grow, to earn more money, and also the inherent feeling of success to start something from nothing and make it successful. Um, those challenges are what entrepreneurs, I think they actually thrive on. They look for hurdles to overcome, challenges to succeed in, and get great joy out of not only making money, but making something happen and, and turn around one day and look back at hiring dozens, if not hundreds of employees and people who build families and households on that idea that we created from nothing and having now hundreds of people that can, that can look back and say their entire life was based on what you created in a business and an opportunity for them to work for you and earn a living. It's a great sense of accomplishment that every entrepreneur strives for. And I feel like I was incredibly lucky and fortunate, I believe, to make a great series of partnerships work, uh, learn what I did in the Marine Corps to help me succeed in business, and then find a town that opportunity existed in where I could make things happen like uh, some of the businesses we've discussed so far today. Right. I, I'd love to dive deeper into the beginning of the first one. So that first tavern, part of the reason why is because a lot of our listeners are very much so at the beginning of their entrepreneur, solopreneur journeys, right? And, and often the hardest one can be the first. And so I'd love to hear more about, you, you'd mentioned that you had a client actually looking for a tavern location. You found a pretty good one. Uh, he ended up not being that interested in it. And so you went out and found the resources to make it happen for yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about, A, how you were able to make that happen? And B, what was the hunch at the time that led you to think, I think this is a good location to buy and a good business to start? Okay, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I, I tried to be brief in giving you an overview because I, I didn't want to go into too much detail unless you wanted it, so I'm happy to do that. Ab absolutely. So, no, I, I like to hear the grand story, okay. and then usually there's little pieces I, you know, I, I, I like to hear about more, a little bit more, and, so, and this is definitely one of them. So picture this. I'm, I'm working as a realtor by day. We're, we're in 1978-79, um, working at the Tropicana from 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. at night. And my 21 pit boss 
the guy running the blackjack pit that I was assigned in, comes to me one day, I'm standing on a dead roulette game, no players, and he says, hey, Corey, I heard you're a realtor. My daughter's a bartender. I've been thinking about buying a bar. She can run it, and it'll be a nice little investment for me. Do you think you could find me something? I said, Danny, I'm happy to try. Uh, let me look around, and I'll get back to you. So I put on my thinking cap. Um, uh, as a former Marine and just a normal person, you know, from time to time, I'd meet a couple of buddies at some different taverns around town. And there was one particular tavern on my way home that at 3 a.m. I would stop at if a couple of guys had agreed to meet there, have a cocktail on the way home just to unwind a little bit uh, from, a, from a shift of dealing. Well, this particular tavern was called the Suburban Lounge West. And um, it was a nice little place, only about 2,000 square feet. And it had a couple of pool tables, a horseshoe-shaped bar that would seat about 35 people, a couple of cocktail tables. And uh, I found it to be a nice little neighborhood establishment. So I asked the bartender one night what time the owner was normally there. And she told me he came in around 9 a.m. to do the bank business. So I walked in the next morning, introduced myself to him, found out that he used to be a craps dealer at the Sands Hotel, wow. who, who went into the bar business himself one day and asked him if he'd be interested in selling it. And he indicated that he wasn't interested in listing it with a realtor, that he was getting pitched by realtors all the time looking for a listing. But if he had the right offer, he would sell it and just go develop another location. And as you could imagine, a guy who found an empty shopping center and could put a tavern in it could build a place back then for maybe $30,000. And if he could flip it for over 100000 in his mind, he could just go build another one for thirty or forty, mm -hmm. and and make a score. So I assured him I was not just a realtor looking for a listing. I actually had a buyer that was ready, willing, and able to perform. I just needed to know the terms of the deal. So he gives me some preliminary numbers about what they're doing. Tells me he wanted a hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the bar and uh, thirty-five down. So I go back to the 21 boss and tell him the terms. And he says, oh, that's way out in the middle of nowhere, way out on the southwest corner of town. He said, hell, they still ride horses out there. He said, I, I want to be down just east of the strip near where I live. I said, okay, Danny, well, you didn't tell me that. I'll look around somewhere in your neighborhood. But really, I think that's a great location. And this way this town is growing, that's not going to be on the edge of town anymore in the next couple of years. And he said, kid, just find me something near Paradise Road. I said, okay, I'll keep looking. In the meantime, I've got it in the back of my head that this place is on my way home. I think I could make something like that work, but I didn't have $35,000. Around the same time, there was a roulette dealer I worked with named Jose Martinez, who we worked together for a couple of years. 
and uh, he approached me as a realtor to sell an investment duplex he owned, and he just wanted to pull his equity out of it and do something else with the money. I listed his duplex, had it sold and in escrow, and fortuitously and fortuitously and quite coincidentally, he was netting about $35,000 at a time when I was looking for $35,000. And this is a message for all your wannabe entrepreneurs. Don't ever think, I can't do that. I don't have the money to do it. Don't ever think in the negative. Think in the positive. Think what if. Because I went to Jose and said, we got your con your duplex sold and closed. Here's your closing documents. Here's your closing check. What are you going to do with this money? And he said, I don't know. Uh, I was going to just put it in the bank and earn interest. I said, Jose, the bank today is going to pay you about 6% interest per year. I want to buy this business. I'm looking for this amount of money to make a down payment. Would you loan it to me if I doubled your return? and paid you 12% interest per year on a five-year note. Here's what your payments would be. And he said, sounds good, Ron, and turned the check over, signed it over to me, and slid it across the table. And I said, Jose, I'm overwhelmed at your level of trust, but I want to do this the right way for you. I'm willing to put a second on my house to secure it, even though my house doesn't have that amount of equity, but I want to do it the right way for your protection. And he said, do whatever you want. He said, I've watched you the last couple of years when other dealers go down to the break room on their breaks and, and, and gamble with each other in a card game. He said, you go down and read. You became a realtor. You're always reading something. He said, I think you're going to do something big with your life. I've got great confidence in you, and I'm happy to loan you this money. It sounds like a good deal for you and a good deal for me. And I took wow. that money, approached the owner of the Suburban Lounge. Of course, that didn't come without a new hurdle. He told me someone else had made him an offer, so I had to outbid the guy by $15,000 before he'd sell it to me. It was a modest increase in my monthly payment rather than an increase in the down payment. And we inked a deal and closed escrow. And I went into that bar in January of 1979, introduced myself to every customer that walked in the door. They, they, I was a 27-year-old young kid just taking a shot. And people actually got excited for me. They wanted to see me succeed. As they got to know me, I tried to be personable and outgoing. And we built that bar from a tavern that sold one, uh, one to $300 a day in drinks into a tavern that it did over $3,000 a day in revenue between food sales and gaming revenue and parlayed that into all the other business that, that we may get into if we have enough time today. Right. That, that's incredible. And if I can add one more, probably there's a, there's a bunch of takeaways from even just that little story that you told, but another key takeaway is, is to, to work hard, right? Put in the work, put yourself out there because if you weren't reading hard and, and learning more, you never would have gained that trust. 
if you didn't start as a realtor, you never would have been in the situation to even have, you know, found that 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 tavern was for sale and, and put all these pieces together. And, and uh, a lot of stories I hear from successful entrepreneurs like you, Ron, are a lot of pieces tend to fall into place if you're putting in hard work, right? If you're putting yourself out there and, and working hard and, and learning. And so that, yes. that, that's really, that's really incredible. So you need you to remember three words, Josh, mm-hmm. go for it. Right. Many people have a self-defeatist attitude that I encounter and they say, well, I wanted to do this, but I knew that would never happen. So I worked at the power company for 40 years, but oh, how I wish I would have done this when I had the chance or done that. And they just didn't have the faith in themselves to take a shot. Now, I'll admit that if I, if I had the three kids that I'm now blessed with, you're able to risk failure. And, and it's important to know I didn't quit my dealing job because I bought a tavern. I had to make sure that I could earn enough money to support and meet my obligations. So I was willing to do the work and do multiple different jobs until I grew confident in myself, in my skills, and in the business I acquired before giving up the thing that was paying my day-to-day bills. But as I said, three key words, go for it. If you have the opportunity, you're not going to know if it works if you don't take the shot. And people that, that have a dream are never going to experience that, that dream if they don't take a shot and go for it. Totally, totally agree. That's a great, uh, a great message right there. Ron, can we spend a few minutes focusing on what it was that drove your success at that first tavern? So, so you finalize the deal, you walk in the next day. What, what was your strategy and what would you say were maybe the two or three keys to building that tavern up that other people might be able to apply to other businesses that they're starting or, or have already started now? Okay, well, as, as I've described, I've, if I had to label myself with a career title, I'm an observational entrepreneur or a niche finder. So when I determined my first business venture was going to be a tavern, I looked around town. I stopped in many places. I got a feel for what I thought places did right versus places did wrong. I felt, uh, let me determine, what am I looking for as the customer? And that applies to any business you go into. How are you going to do it better than someone else? Now, one of the things I noticed that many, many places, you know, drinking and, and smoking seem to go hand in hand. While I've never smoked, the fact is that most taverns that have drinkers have smokers. And you'd walk in a bar and it would be so smoke-filled that for someone who's a non-smoker that wants to go socialize, it was very uncomfortable. So I did some research into how do you how do you resolve that problem? And I found that if you build a place with a higher ceiling, that scientifically smoke climbs to a level of about three to five feet from the ceiling. So if you built a higher ceiling, the smoke wouldn't be right around where your head was standing in a building. Also, technology helps us. Companies started building things called smoke eaters that were electronic carbon filtered devices that would actually slip into a two by four foot ceiling tile space 
and they would intake air from one side, run it through a carbon filter, and blow it out the other. That type of air circulation around the tavern uh, where I would have a company come in and tell me how many my square footage needs would determine were appropriate, and I would have them double it. I'd spend a few hundred more dollars and put in double the amount of smoke eaters and uh, make my place a little bit more comfortable. Now, making it comfortable for people not only relates to making it less smoke-filled, but people also want a clean and safe place to hang out. For example, unescorted women. If they go in a bar and they're met with catcalls and a bunch of grabby guys, they're not going to go back. Well, if you could just imagine filling a place with unescorted women, the men are going to follow. So I ran a place which I like to call a tight ship. I was in good shape. I was willing and able to use my hands if needed to tell someone, hey, you can't do that. And if a guy was resistant to house rules and refused to leave, I was able to convince them to leave. Let's leave it at that. Right. But you end up with a bar full of women. Then you end up with a bar full of men. You make it clean by having it cleaned up every morning and every night, make the restrooms clean where people can go in and feel comfortable. These little things may sound like minor things, but I found that bars I'd go into, I'd walk into the restroom to relieve myself, and it was so filthy because they only cleaned them once a day. Uh, you wouldn't want to go back. Who would want to go into a place where you couldn't wash your hands and feel like you came out cleaner than you went in? Mm-hmm. So I was uh, a, a bit crazed with instructing my employees to go in and check the restrooms once per hour. If someone made a nasty mess throwing up or whatever, it needed to get cleaned up and run a place that was clean and safe run a relatively smoke-free environment and make my taverns the kind of place that people would want to hang out. And lo and behold, as I would drive up this commercial thoroughfare, getting from the Las Vegas Strip to my tavern, four miles west of the Strip, I would see tavern after tavern with three or four cars in their parking lot and my tavern with 15 or 20 cars in my parking lot. So I knew that my theory was working So I just stuck to the plan, and in that location and every subsequent one we purchased or built, we ran it with that mentality. And each tavern we developed was incredibly successful, and we would end up buying or building them for $100,000 to a quarter million each and sell them for over a million each. Right. That's incredible. And and so can we touch a little bit on the – non-tavern businesses that that came after then if if you can go into uh, you touched on the design studio i believe a little bit um I'd, i'd love to hear a little bit more if you can on how the other ones came to be and then was there overlap in terms of applying the lessons you'd learned from the tavern to these new businesses were they totally unrelated i'd, I'd be interested to hear about that okay well You know, when Dan and I got out of the Marines, he had worked in Philadelphia before enlisting as a screen printer. So when he came to Las Vegas, he went to work as a screen printer and applied his printing skills to what was being done here, which was instead of printing flags and signs as he did in 
Philadelphia, they were printing slot machine glass fronts and reel strips, the, the spinning reels that display the sevens, cherries, and lemons. Mm-hmm. I went to work as a dealer. Well, when Cy Red developed video poker, um, Dan and I had already been in a bar business for four or five years and were looking for something new to do. And I spoke to Dan about taking his printing skills and opening our own print shop where he would leave the slot manufacturing company he was with. He pointed out that there was no one to print slot glass for at the time because Bally's was pretty much the only game in town that was making machines. Well, when his one, a guy he worked with developed video poker and opened Fortune Coin, which later became IGT, other people realized that there was a market in people with the technological knowledge to develop a new kind of machine. And slot manufacturers began to pop up like weeds. And while they might build uh, a, a shop where they could build a computer chip to run the machine they invented, they didn't want to get into every aspect of it and build a frame of the machine or the cabinet above which the machine would sit or do the graphics. So Dan came back to me and said, remember a couple of years ago, you talked about us opening a print shop and I told you there was no market for it. He said, well, now there's a market being created. Let's look into opening a print shop. Now, since we had good luck buying the suburban lounge, we took that same name And when we opened the graphics company, we took the Suburban Lounge name and opened our graphics company and called it for Suburban Graphics, which Dan would apply his skill set to, and he would run that, and I would run what, which at the time was uh, our, our taverns, and that's how the graphics company came to be, which we parlayed that you'd have to buy raw glass to print on for slot machines. So two years later, we opened a wholesale mirror and glass company, which would stock our printing company with the raw glass and would also sell glass and mirror to the local marketplace. Right. That's another business we started called glass supply around the same time. I identified that people, who were drinking at a tavern uh, were starting to hire cars because drinking and driving enforcement was starting to become a bigger thing than it used to be. Back in the 60s and 70s, a cop would pull over a guy who had too much to drink and they'd call him a cab, make him come back to the police department the next day to get his car keys. Now, that's a, a concept that is foreign to anybody today who's mm-hmm. somewhat younger. But back in the 60s and 70s, that's the way life was. Well, with drinking and driving enforcement becoming more prevalent in the 80s, people who were going to have a few cocktails were used to hiring a car. I found that there were very few cars for hire in the Las Vegas community at the time, and that that was a new niche that maybe we could fill. So I did some research. I learned what it would take to open a limousine company and developed the concept of presidential limousine service, which, the, which has earned its, its place in my book, 
with its own chapter because daring to go into transportation in the 1980s, I found, was uh, resulted in many death threats, vandalization to my limos, and uh, a whole new series of obstacles I had to overcome to go into that business. And the book goes into detail about how the death threats were delivered to me, what I did to combat them, and how we overcame that challenge, succeeded in presidential limousine service, and how we ultimately built it into a premier stretch uh, tuxedo chauffeured company that we later sold at a great profit and developed a neighborhood casino from those revenues. Wow. That's, that's incredible, Ron. And, and one theme I'm definitely noticing is you, from your successful companies, you were able to, like you said, being the observational entrepreneur, observe these new opportunities that were arising as per the earlier companies and, and, and the overlap, you know, the benefits of having two where they can kind of service each other uh, sounds like it, it definitely helped you know, as difficult as business is, any advantage we can get, especially with the newer businesses, is obviously uh, a great thing to do. And so your subsequent ones were put into much better positions thanks to your first few, which which sounds uh, like a great way of, of running a whole bunch of businesses. Ron, the, the really, really interesting story, and, and I love hearing all the details. Can you give us a few general pieces of advice if, if you were speaking to uh, some of our listeners directly who are in their 20s, maybe they're working a full-time job and, and they do want to start that entrepreneurial journey or someone who's just at the beginning of it, maybe two or three pieces of advice you would give to them as they begin? Well, I would say to make it a mainstay of your general philosophy in life, and this is an old term of art people are not going to hear for the first time from me, but failure is not an option. Make that part of your mentality if you're going to dare to go into business for yourself because you will surely encounter various types of hurdles. Just know that they're coming. And instead of being down or feeling, oh, I know I shouldn't have done it, look at this obstacle uh, and, and, and not take it as a defeatist attitude, but instead see it as a challenge. One, one thing I could compare it to is uh, challenges create opportunities. You know, um, nobody wants to hear about a fire, but, but if you didn't have fires, you wouldn't need firemen. Nobody right. wants to see crime grow, but if you didn't have crime, you wouldn't need police. Well, if it was easy to do something, everyone would be doing it. When you go into business for yourself, while the future has the possibility of great uh, senses of achievement and greater income, look at every challenge that comes as a hurdle to overcome. And when you find a way through, around, or over that obstacle, come out on the other side feeling like you've had a good day. You resolve that problem and take these challenges for exactly what they are. They're not something that are going to defeat you. You need to defeat them and, and find a way around the problem. Here, here's an example. Uh, I wanted my limousine company to succeed against all the others. I found that the other limousine companies, while they advertised 
cars with bars built into them. None of them ever came with anything on the bar. It was just just a wooden fixture in the back of a limo with nothing on it. Well, mm. there were logistical complications to stocking the bar. But if I had bars, taverns situated around town, my limos being jointly operated, I could send my limo to either of my tavern locations, use the 500-pound ice machine I had in there to stock the ice bin, stock my bars with bottles of club soda, mixes, and bottled waters that my drivers could stock their bars with and, and let one opportunity support the other. Uh, when I found that the local car washes charged an exorbitant premium to wash our limos every day, and it was actually eliminating the profits we were seeing because you'd want to run your cars through a car wash after each use. Well, we opened our own car wash. Right. Now we could roll our cars through the car washes for nothing, and the other three and 400 cars a day that we washed became a, a profit center in and of itself. So between stocking the bars at our local taverns, washing them at our own car wash, we turned around and had our taverns supporting the limo company, which was supported by the car wash. And uh, things, this goes back to your question, things that seem like obstacles, you actually turn them into opportunities and find a way to overcome them as we did in the different new challenges we were faced with. Right. That's, that's a, a really great lesson. Ron, really appreciate you coming on the show. The, the story, your answers have been extremely insightful. If people want to either get in touch with you or learn more about you or, or grab the book, where can they find all that? Okay, there's a great website that describes more about the book. It has an audio sample of my audiobook version, which, by the way, I, I hired an actor to record my book named Michael Madsen. He's well-known from Reservoir Dogs and Donnie Brasco. Oh, wow. He's got a very unique voice. And my website has a sample of the audiobook. It also has a quick link to Amazon to find the book. Well, the book is titled Tenacity, and the website is www.roncoreyauthor.com. Awesome. And we'll have a link to that in the description on no matter what podcast platform you're listening to this on. Ron, thank you again so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your stories and your insights. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity, and I would like to leave your listeners with the fact that um, the book goes into many more businesses that I went into. We just didn't have enough time today, but I think they would find the book inspirational, motivational, and educational if they want to go into business for themselves someday. Awesome. Thanks again, Ron. All the best. Okay, Josh. Take care. Hey everyone, Josh here, checking in just one last time. Wanted to say thanks so much for listening to the podcast episode. I hope you got a ton of value out of it. And if you want to keep getting more of the Solopreneur Grind content, make sure to join the email list. What I do is send three emails a week with 
additional content such as what's going on in the background of my solopreneur journey, insights I'm having on business, and updates when new podcast episodes like these come out as well. It's free. It always will be. The link to join is in the description of whatever podcast platform you're listening this to on. Really hope to have you on the list and continuing to share these awesome solopreneur journeys and insights with you as well. Have a great day and hope to see you soon.